Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Nick had uh, 30 seconds uh, earlier for you to, to remove all the distractions. I feel like I need another five minutes. <laughs> it's been one of those mornings, you know? I feel like uh, when we have good things going on, the devil always tries to mess with things. So we're here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Trey, and I get to be the pastor here at Contrast Church. Today's a very exciting Sunday. We are uh, going to baptize someone, so that's very exciting. <laughs> And, uh, you know, if you're going to have a baptism, what's more fitting than cookies and frozen ice? So we're also going to have that. That's not as important, but you can also be excited about that. It's okay. Uh, We are in a series. We are going through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to join us. It's in the front of uh, Revelation, which is in the absolute back of your Bible. So pretty easy if you want to go the whole way to the back and just turn it, you're there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have a physical one in front of you, we have some in the back that Jerry would love to give you. Uh, otherwise, I'll let you get on your phones. This is our, um, this is our third week in, um, in the seven churches of Revelation. And uh, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you've probably noticed a bit of a trend. There's these seven uh, cities along the coast in what we call Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day Turkey. And uh, John, who writes the, the Revelation, as we would call it, not Revelations, it's the Revelation, uh, writes basically these uh, dreams that he's seeing, and Jesus is speaking to him, and he's recording them. So that, that is basically what the seven church, the letters of the seven churches are. They're these small little glimpses into each of these churches. Now, what's cool about this, and if you follow the series, is there's a lot of overlap. There, the cities have a lot of similarities. Uh, they have a lot of similar like problems. For instance, like if you lived here, you might have similar problems to those who live in Michigan, other than you're a Michigan fan, that's a massive problem, but, but, um, but similar problems, right? Like it's not like the, the, the difference between living here and maybe in Europe, right? Um, so these cities have similarities. So if you track with us each week, you'll kind of notice that a lot of them are starting to uh, have similarities in the way that, that Jesus is speaking to them. And uh, the Pergamum, which is what we're going to talk about today, is, is actually a really unique city. It has a lot going on. Um, if you, uh, it's funny, I feel like all of these cities have just great names, but Pergamum might be my favorite. Uh, I want to show you just a photo really quick, because if you like archaeology or you like to just, I don't know, you like history, uh, this is a, a photo, if Hannah is putting it up, sorry, two seconds. I, um, I had all these photos for this, and then I left them on my desktop, which is in the office, so this is my life right now, but... Basically, uh, this is a city, it's kind of hard to see, but basically it's, it's on a hillside, and what it would be called in Greek terms is an Acropolis. Now, if you've ever heard the word Acropolis, typically they're referring to the Greek Pantheon and all that kind of stuff. An Acropolis basically just means like a high city, an elevated city. And so we talk about Pergamon, what we're talking about primarily is the Acropolis. Now, the thing is, is that the city was massive. It wasn't just on this hill, it was a lot of people, I mean, if you look, if you're, if you're going to fit tons of people, they all don't live on that hill. It's kind of like the main strip of the city, if you will. Uh, and it was typically fortified. And so um, basically what, they're, uh, what, what the reason why they were built on cities is because they had defense mechanisms. If you're on top of a hill, you have the high ground. And the word Pergamum actually means citadel in Greek. So it's literally like a citadel on a hill. If you look on the top left, that's where the citadel was. 
And so you're, if you're a normal person, there's, a, there's probably 100,000, 200,000 people living here at the time. You live on the flatlands in the, in the valley, and then, but you go up there all the time for, um, for like different things, religious activities, uh, trading, library, all this kind of stuff. Pergamum, though, if you look, there's a, lot, there's a lot of different words on here. Pergamum has a lot going on. So last week, we talked about the church in Smyrna, and they had a temple that was for uh, the Romans. And so at this time, the Romans were heavily um, consuming this area, and basically what they do is they let these cities do whatever they wanted to do, but they had to pledge allegiance to Rome. And so they started to develop these things called the imperial cult, where it was essentially like worshiping the emperor or the Roman emperor as if he was God. It was the same as all the other gods that the Greeks would believe in. They would have these temples, they would do sacrifices, all this kind of stuff, right? And so not only do you have one temple in this city, but you actually have four. So a lot going on. You can show the next photo if you have it. Uh, this is a like a 3D uh, diorama of, of the city they believed at the time. Now, uh, what's fascinating about this is is uh, most of these things are not here today. You can see, you saw in the ruins. But um, I just want to point out a couple fun facts for those of you who like this. I promise this won't be forever. But so basically you have four temples going on here. Okay, you have, uh, this is the altar of Zeus, which is, or sorry, this is the altar of Zeus, which is like a massive temple for the god of Zeus. You've probably heard of him. He's got lightning bolts. He's in uh, Hercules, you know, great. Uh, Then you have, uh, I have to look at my notes. I forget the exact name, but you have another temple right here. And this is a massive theater. And then you have another temple here and another temple over there. A lot of temples going on. As you can tell, there's a lot of real estate. It's like when you go to a Midwestern intersection, there's four churches on each corner. And you're like, really? This is, I guess if I get mad at one, I can walk across the street. Um, but it's, it's, it's fascinating how um, they had so much going on. This is pretty rare. A lot of cities only have one, maybe two temples. There wasn't even really a synagogue in the city, at least on the Acropolis area. And so it was dominated by um, so many opinions and religious thoughts and ideas. Uh, a really cool fact was a theater also was of very big significance. You know, we think about theaters today of like, yeah, they're not going to be around. Like, we have the Lennox over there, and uh, we're enjoying it. But theaters back then were like this massive, prominent thing. In fact, this theater is one of the steepest theaters ever built. If you look down on it, uh, you could literally like, fall and die. It's, it's kind of remarkable. But the, the point of this was this city was a hopping city. It had a lot going on. It was very impressive. In fact, one commentator uh, said that it was probably one of the most distinguished cities in Asia Minor at the time. And it has just so many different avenues of worship. Now, what's uh, unique about this is, is, in last week is Adam talked about the imperial cult and how they were one of few cities that were able to basically be accepted to do this. It was a big honor. It developed a lot of like uh, rapport with the emperor at Rome at the time. And uh, this city was also one of those. The word is neokoros, which means temple sweeper, which basically means that it took the, the devotion to the emperor very serious. And Pergamon was the, the first one to do that. And not only that, they had another one built. So they had two temples for basically the same thing because the city was so intense about its uh, worship of Rome. So you basically have these, these massive temples. So you have the great altar, which is for Zeus. You have the temple of uh, Trajan, which is um, the emperor, was one of the emperors at the time, imperial. Then you have the temple of Dionysus, which is like a Greek god. And then you have the temple of Athena. So you have four massive temples that are prominent. People travel from all over the world to see these. Uh, And actually, the the temple of Athena was also a famous library. It had 200,000 manuscripts in it. And you're like, Trey, that's nothing. My Kindle has far more than that. But back then, it's pretty impressive. (laughs) 
So people would travel from all over. And then I added a fifth one because the fifth one is unique. It's actually at the base. It's where people would live. And this is, this is the Ascapalon, which was a healing center devoted to the god Ascapios. I'm probably saying it wrong, uh, who was the god of healing. So you have all these different reasons for people to come to the city, to live in the city. Uh, and, and honestly, it's overwhelming because if you're, if you're a Christian and you follow Jesus at this time, like there's, a, there's so many different variables. You have to ask, okay, do you follow this God? Do you go to this temple? And then you have to think about, okay, what do they believe about that? And a lot of them treated it like a spiritual buffet. So they'd spend the day, they go to Zeus, and they go to, they just, it's like bar hopping for temples. They would just, they would just, they couldn't find their favorite one. And a lot of them were just trying to play the odds, right? If I prevent sacrifice all these places, odds are one of them will take, right? Uh, the, the healing one is unique because the healing one was at the base of the, uh, the Acropolis. It was, it was where everyone lived. And that was like a world-famous healing center. I mean, people from all over, even like prominent kings and things like that, would come because they believe they're healing powers. And so literally what you do is you go and you basically stay the night there. You stay for as long as you, felt, as long as you could. And if you felt like you were healed, then you'd sacrifice a chicken or a goat and be on your way. And so there was just so many people coming into the city with different influences. And I think about this, like, how do we internalize this and why does this matter, right? These cities are very different culturally than us. They have a lot going on, a lot of different complexities. But I think at the end of the day, like, it's a perfect understanding for America. There's so many different cultures. There's so many different opinions. There's so many different, um, even just, even in Columbus, if you live in one suburb compared to another, compared to another street, like, things massively change. And so the best way to put this in our own context is imagine that if you've ever been to Las Vegas, uh, you don't have to raise your hands. I won't judge you. Uh, if you've ever been to Las Vegas, uh, you know that uh, Las Vegas, when people say, I'm, I'm going to Vegas, really what they mean is I'm going to basically this one like little road and strip in the entire Vegas area. Vegas is massive, and it spreads very far, but most of what is going on in Vegas that we would know of, gambling and casinos and all that, is on a very small strip. And so in the same way, this is kind of how this city was. It was like everybody might not necessarily partake in extreme ways, but if you're going to go to the center of everything, you know about it, you probably have some bit of cultural influence on it, uh, and it'd be hard to be like, I'm going to move to Vegas and I hate gambling. It would be a little bit like, why are you moving there then? Because that's, it doesn't mean everybody in Vegas gambles, but it means it's the prominent cultural norm in that city. And so in the same way, this was basically how Pergam was. It was the cultural norm to be essentially a religious buffet. You could find what you needed and you wouldn't have to worry too much about it. So this gets to where, now that we kind of understand the city, it gets to where in Revelation, uh, Jesus has some words to say about Pergamos. So like I said, if you're in your Bibles, it'll be Revelation 2. Revelation 2. Now before I read it, I just kind of want to show you, um, this is a formula that Adam mentioned last week. We'll probably show it most weeks to try to help you remember this, but each of these letters that are written, the seven that we talk about, they all have like a formula, meaning they have specific focuses and points and literary designs that when we read them, they're all very similar. So for instance, there is uh, six, six points to this. Uh, the first one is always addressed to the angel of the, of the church in a given city. So that, the angel would just mean like leader, elder, church leader. The angel is, is that. And then it would say, write the following. And then it would talk about Jesus. And it would often have some term for Jesus. Each one has kind of a different way to illustrate Jesus and who he is. And then, and then it would start with, I know statements, meaning Jesus would be saying, I know that this is going on. Oftentimes it was an encouragement. Like, I know you've been faithful. I know you've been pursuing these things. I know you've been doing this. And then the fourth one, there's typically, but I have this against you, which is some sort of reproof, uh, reproof or rebuke. Um, 
And then the last two was, he basically always says, the one who has ears better pay attention to what's going on. And then the, the last piece is an eschatological promise, which means an end times, like a, a long uh, eternal hope. And so that's the formula of this letter. So when we read this, you'll kind of notice, you can leave this up while I read it, unless you were going to put the scripture up there, but it'll, it'll kind of flow in this format. Verse 12, it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That's Jesus. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you continue to cling to my name, and you have not uh, denied your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed in your city where Satan lives. So that's kind of the, the, I know, the encouragement. But I have a few things against you. You have some people who follow the teaching of Balaam, who instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. In the same way, there are also some among you who follow the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. And on that stone will be written a new name that no one can understand except the one who receives it. So if you kind of think about that formula, it, it kind of makes sense. Now, if you just read this at face value, let's just say you were sitting at home or in a coffee shop and you read this, you'd probably be like, I kind of get like 5% of what's going on. There's a lot of illustrations, right? Which is why most of us are terrified of Revelation. There's a lot going on. And uh, it's funny because when I do my, my research, I read several different commentaries, a lot of well-known ones. Uh, some of them are also like, yeah, we don't know what this means. Here's like seven different ideas. And that doesn't mean that we are like, oh my gosh, this is terrible, this is terrible, right? But we have to think about this culture at the time. Um, that symbolism was an incredibly powerful way of speech. And for us, we oftentimes are more literal. We try to take things literal, right? We think like a stone, it must be a physical stone. And there's a lot more behind that. So I want to I flesh out some of that. As Adam had said last week, like, there's a lot of different views on Revelation. And we're not here to say that like, everyone else is wrong. But what we're trying to do is present what we believe is the most valid understanding of this. And at the end of the day, we want it to honor Jesus. And so that's our goal. And so that's what I'm going to do as I took a lot of different thoughts. And, uh, and we're going to go through this. So the, the beginning part is fascinating. I don't know if you've ever pronounced Jesus as this. But if someone says, who is Jesus? And you say, well, he's the one with this sharp, double-edged sword. That person would probably walk away from you. They'd be very confused. Um, but this was, this was incredibly provocative at the time. The, the Pergamum Christians, those who chose to follow Jesus in this environment, uh, were in a city where the proconsul, which was like the Roman governor, if you will, the head of the Roman uh, um, like the city, the jurisdiction, could execute pretty much anyone at will if they really wanted to. It was Rome. They could do that. If they didn't like you, they could chop your head off. And so he was essentially the wielder of the sword. He was the one who could enforce justice in whatever means that he thought was valid. And so as a Christian, that's kind of terrifying because in, uh, in the church of Smyrna last week, they were basically, Jews had protections from the Romans, and then the Christians got thrown out from the Jews because they said, no, you're not really Jews. And so they were dealing with two sides of this attacking of, we don't like the Christians, what are we going to do about them? This place was like a spiritual buffet. And so there were so many different um, people groups and beliefs and all that, but Christians were the most probably misunderstood and most hated because of the way of life and the way that they chose to live, right? Because their belief was not God's, wasn't they're all good and they're all right and they're all helpful. It was God, it was Jesus, 
and he is my Lord, meaning that Caesar isn't. And so Jesus immediately basically says, hey, you know the guy who has this sword? Yeah, well, I have a double-edged sword. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one who calls the shots, and I want you to remember that. And to the Pergamums, it's a pretty, a pretty beautiful statement because when you think about it, like, sometimes we just in our days just need to know, like, Jesus is in control. It sounds very obvious, sounds even cliche, but, like, God is not like, oh, my gosh, oh, no, another pandemic. Like, what are we going to do, right? He's not, like, scared sitting on his chair up in heaven, right? He's present, and he's aware, and he's very much even just personalized to what you're going through. And, and, and Jesus here, the first words he says is, look, remember who is ultimately in charge. It's not all the pretty buildings on the hill. It's not all the sacrifices that you're giving to all these random gods. I am the one who is in charge, and I am the one who is the true Lord. And so he kind of starts off with that, which is a good reminder. And then he goes into the I know statement, which we love. It's a good encouragement, right? He's usually pretty positive. He starts off kind of weird, though. He says, I know where you live, which is an interesting statement, right? <laughs> If I call you any of you in the middle of the week, just say, hey, I want to encourage you. I know where you live. It would not, it would not go off. Though. You're like, I shouldn't have gave him my address. I knew. We usually just send you free gifts and stuff, so usually it's worth it. But um, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you continue to cling to my name. You have not denied your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. Antipas, excuse me. Uh, so what is Satan's throne, right? You read this. Uh, there's a couple different ideas on this. Some thought it made <laughs> reference to Zeus's altar, which I had mentioned up there, that was a really significant temple and pretty impressive. I mean, it was like painted and it was, it was really cool, really beautiful, had tons of columns and all that good stuff. Uh, it overlooked the city. Others have taken it to uh, believe that it was the cult of uh, Asclepius, which is the, the healing temple, right? Because they were, they were people were going there with faith, hoping they'd be healed from this god. Uh, and then others uh, would say that when you were approaching the city from the south, the city would look like a giant throne on the hill. So it was like it just looked like this massive throne. And so those are a couple different ideas. But I think the best idea is thinking about the the Satan, meaning the accuser, is what Satan means, right? You think this devil with ears, not necessarily, or horns, not necessarily the most accurate depiction, but, because uh, Halloween definitely trivializes it, but, but the Satan, the, the, the accuser is this, um, sometimes it's this person, sometimes it's, it's this, this, this sinful pressure, this influence that is against the will of God, and in this, this instance, what is the Satan to a, a first century Christian? It is Rome. It is everything Rome stands for. It is the fact that, that most of the emperors have claimed to either be equal to God or God themselves. It is the fact that they are controlling a massive part of this area and other areas of the world at this time. And it is also um, that they are not only doing that, but people are worshiping that idea. And so if you think about when you go into Pergamum, you have this massive temple on this beautiful hill, and they're worshiping Rome themselves. They're worshiping an emperor. They're worshiping the culture of Rome. It's very likely that Satan is just is just basically the Rome, the not Rome itself, but what Rome is doing in contrary to God's will. And I think in the world, you know, we have a lot of like we would call it satanic behavior, right? Things that we know are against the will of God that uh, that are not good. And Jesus is basically saying, look, you are surrounded. Like the throne of Satan is there. It is so prevalent. And the reason why he would say it was here is because, like I had mentioned earlier, not only were they one temple sweeper, which was the Neo-Koros word, which means they got to have a temple to worship uh, the emperor, they had two. So it was like this was the most prominent city to worship the emperor in this entire area. It was the beacon of Roman power in this entire area. And 
Jesus is like, yeah, like, like Satan is sitting on this hill trying to basically consume this entire area with spiritual pressure. And so I don't know about you, but uh, not a good place to live, not a most encouraging thing. Jesus is, 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 is letting you know of the reality of the situation. Smyrna was interesting because Jesus had called Smyrna uh, a synagogue of Satan. And what he was saying there was the Jewish people, which who were supposed to be following God, right? Yahweh, the Father, denies Jesus, and they become a synagogue of Satan, which is, how about that? How would you like to be known as a church, the church of Satan, right? Like, we are trying to do good things, but in light of that, we, we deny truth, and we compromise, and we whatever. And so there, there's, like, a lot going on here that Jesus is calling out. And one thing that I think is unique about our culture is we get pretty nervous when we talk about Satan. We get pretty nervous when we talk about demons and spiritual warfare, whether we just don't understand it fully and we're, like, confused because we're, like, I don't really understand, like, is there, like, a demon, like, in my house? Is it, like, physical? Is it in my walls? Like, is it just this idea? Is it in my head? Like, it's, it's, it's supernatural, right? It doesn't, it doesn't always make sense. And so when we talk about Satan, sometimes we, we think we, like, over-spiritualize it or under-spiritualize it and we don't have a really good understanding of it. In this instance, what Jesus is referring to is basically this cultural pressure, just the air around them, was full of basically the antithesis of what God was wanting. Some people have maybe ex- described this, like if you've gone overseas, and I, I don't, I don't want to oversimplify it having to go overseas, but you've been in a place where you really like, have, you, you like feel the weight of it. You, f- you can feel the darkness. I know this sounds very abstract for some of you, and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I went to other countries where I've, I've literally felt that. There's been people who have entered into the presence of like a witch doctor, right, in another country, and have felt the literal spiritual oppression of the city. I've, I've, I've been in areas where I've, I've just felt that. And, uh, and I use Las Vegas as an example, not to like bash Las Vegas, but you walk down the main strip you know, at, at night and you can sometimes feel it. Like everything that's going on around me is probably not something God would be super proud of. And at the end of the day, we have to think about like, what are the ramifications of that in our own life? I started to think about the story of Daniel. I don't know if you've read Daniel in the, in the Bible, but Daniel was just unbelievable. People are so, people, uh, Daniel is like one of the most underrated characters in the Bible. He's in Babylon exile, which means basically he, there's no one following his, his God. There's no one following Yahweh in where, where he is. And yet every day for decades, he's praying three times a day to God through his window. No one else around him is doing it. Everyone else is worshiping idols and other gods. And yet he's staying faithful even when it was against the law. And then so he gets thrown in the lion's den. And there's another story of his buddies who basically it's the same thing. They, they won't bow down to this uh, idol and they get thrown into the furnace and then they get saved out of the furnace. But I think about that. The cultural pressure at that time was so worldly, so oppressive that it must be so intense. And then Jesus adds, not only is it Satan's throne, but one of your high up leaders got m- martyred for it. He talks about Antipas who was this faithful follower of the Church of Pergamum. He's martyred for his faith. Some people, uh, some historians, the legend speculates that he was basically like burned in a brass like um, cauldron, basically, slowly. So not a fun death. Um, but he, he's dying. he dies in front of all these people right in this city. There is a massive reason to just say, yeah, I, th- I think I'm out. Like, I'm going to call it. I'm going to head out. This is, I'm just going to go to one of the other four temples and be normal, right? Because to be a Christian at this time was immensely stressful. I mean, it was so stressful. And so Jesus is proud of them. He really is. He says, I know that, you have, that you've been faithful. You've clung on to me in light of all this. 
I like to think about this question uh, because Pergamum feels very like distant from me. I'm like, well, okay, we don't. We have a lot of maybe different temples of worship, right? But I'm not, you know, I'm not getting necessarily made fun of. I'm not losing out on like social opportunities or, right? I'm not really persecuted that har- that harshly. Um, some people might not like me, but that's you know, everybody doesn't like everybody. You know what I mean? So. But, but how do I put myself in the shoes of, of these people? And I thought about what is the farthest that I'm willing to go where it really starts to stress me out following Jesus? Meaning like what is like you say I'll give up everything for Jesus, but thinking about it, I tried to play this out in my head. Like would I give up uh, my house? Would I give up my cars? Would I give up uh, certain relationships that I've just developed? Would I give up my family members, right? Whether it's like relationally or maybe they are thrown in jail, right? Or I'm thrown in jail. Would I give up my own ability to just be free? Would I, would I, would I go to jail? Would I give up my ability um, to have a limb, which was very common in Rome, right? Like they just chop off one of your limbs if you did something. And most of those answers are I don't even like to think of because I'm like, I don't think so. I hope I would make the right decision, but I've never been, I've never, I've never had that, that moment in my life. And what Jesus is going to get at here and what he's getting at in a lot of these churches is, and, and, and Adam mentioned this last week, is that the big moments of that you think about are often um, dictated by the small moments of compromise that you have in your life. Meaning, like, sure, maybe there's a situation in my life where eventually I'll have to choose between my leg or Jesus. But, but if I've already compromised in 100 different areas in my life, I'm already starting a trajectory of compromise that I could probably easily just say, no, I want to keep my leg. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, pretty much people, have been, people have been killed. There's a lot of other temples going on. Satan's presence is here, and you're still clinging to me. If you've already done that, there's a massive, impressive, it's just impressive, like when you read it. These people are not messing around. But some things have been going on, and he says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you, and this is, uh, this is a pretty interesting thing that's going on. It says, you have some people basically who follow the teaching of Balaam, who instructed Balak to put a stumbling block uh, and the people of Israel. And so long story short, this was a story in the Old Testament where um, Balaam was trying to get Israel to sin because they, this nation was trying to kill Israel. This is back when they were all fighting everybody and everybody was trying to claim land. And, and um, Balaam tries to get them to sin. They can't do it. These Israelites are, for once, actually doing good things. And so he finally realizes that he can, he can have an insidious, subtle way of, of, of causing the Israelites to shift so what do they do? They lure a bunch of Midianite women into their camp who basically they marry or commit adultery with, depending if they're married or not, with these women. And through that process, then they fall in love or whatever it was, and they start to worship their gods. And before you know it, the Israelites are just a train wreck. And they are just, they've, they've compromised everything. And basically Balaam wins. And so Balaam here is, he's, what he's referring to is... He's like, Baum is like a prototype of worldly ideologies that basically make Christians compromise. And so what that means is it's these small perversions of, of truth that we start to step into that we don't even necessarily really realize what they're wrong. And then before we know, we're like, oh my gosh, I married a Mennonite, I divorced my wife or my family, I'm, I'm, I'm child sacrificing, I'm doing all these things. I would have, if the moment they would have asked me at the beginning, I would have said, absolutely not, but here I am now. And I think we think we're a lot different. We think that, like, ah, it's just this small thing. I'm just compromising in this area. It won't affect any of the other areas of my life. But really what it is doing is it's affecting your heart, which is the deepest level. And your heart is your affections, and your affections inform a lot of what you do and why you do it. And these compromises, Jesus is saying, hey, this is not okay. The most simple like, way to put this is 
is he's saying, hey, the people at Pergamum are, are, are using accommodation as their default policy. What it means is they couldn't handle the social pressure, and so they just thought, let's just accommodate our truth and our beliefs so that we'll be able to have less tension and merge and sift better into the culture because this is just too difficult for us to live life. If you've ever uh, been a part of or know of the Mormon church, it's kind of like this in Salt Lake City. Uh, if you move to Salt Lake City, or let's say you say you were born there, let's say you're Mormon. Okay, you grew up Mormon, you live in Salt Lake City, a lot of Mormons in Salt Lake City. Uh, and let's say all of a sudden you decide, you know what, I, I don't believe this, I believe Jesus is the Christ, and I believe this about him, and I, I'm, I'm going to be a Christian, and I'm not going to be Mormon anymore. It is very hard to live in Salt Lake City after that, because your entire family will shun you, your church will shun you, and let's just say you're a trade carpenter, and they will not do work with you, and you won't have a job. And now Salt Lake City is the size where not everyone there is Mormon. You can probably survive. But you are giving up everything to follow Jesus, and you're probably not even sure about it. You know what I mean? Like, you're like, well, you know, that's what they're dealing with. They're saying, well, well can't I just, like, have Jesus but also worship in this temple? Because Rome is kind of our government. I mean, we need to respect them. Can I just do that and also do this? And then if there's, if there's ever intersects that have tension, can we just kind of smooth those out, right? Can we just sort of – and so what the smoothing out was that Jesus mentions – was two things that are unique to this time. One of them was was um, like these uh, these basically food sacrificed parties, um, where they would basically have like this massive party and they would do sacrifices and you were partaking in the sacrifice to other gods. And then the other one was just sexual immorality. It was a massive sexual society. It would it would not be uncommon for thirty people to go into a room and eat for three hours and then all just have sex with each other. It was wild. Um, and so it would be kind of like, okay, these are like people I need to do business with. Like, I kind of got to go to the parties, but maybe I don't go to the parties. But if I don't go to the parties, then are they going to do work with me? Then I might not have my trade. Then I can't feed my family. And then is Jesus really in charge? This is the web that you get caught in. And so it was easier for Christians just to say, well, why don't we just kind of accommodate? And this is what Balaam did. Balaam said, no, no, it's okay. You can marry the Mennonite women or you can let them into your, into your camp where God was very clearly like, no, you're not going to allow them into your camp, which is why he was so against them and so destructive to them later. is because they literally got to the point where they were sacrificing children. And they're saying, wait, like, how do we get here? You know, and, and I think about this practically, like, this is a classic guy illustration. Uh, you got a group of guys, your friends getting married, and at their bachelor party, they're like, hey, we're going to have a stripper. And you're like, okay. All right, so what do you do? Do you sit in the room, close your eyes? Do you not go? Do you partake, but inside you're dying inside? Or maybe your heart's just, you're like, I love this. This is great, right? But what, and, but I mean, at the end of the day, what do you do? This is happening to them nine times a day, right? Like these, these incense burnings, these meals that were, that were given to, to uh, the gods, these like sexual immorality orgies and parties, and, and, and it was just very fluid. And like, what do you do, right? I, well, I love my friend, and I want to support him, but I don't want to be around a stripper. And if I, if I say no or I don't go, like, how am I going to handle that? Is that going to cause strife in our relationship? And I know that I'm called to be, like, light in the world, so what do I do, right? It, it's, I mean, and you're, I, I, th I think about it, like, you know, you can immediately think about, like, how that conversation will go. And if you're doing that all the time, you have these friends, you're constantly saying, hey, I just, I can't go on that, right? Let's just say you've, You've, you've been drinking too much and you feel conviction about it and your friends keep wanting to go on these bar crawls and you're like, oh, like, I just don't know if I can go. Or I don't know if I have the strength right now to go and to not become who I don't want to become, right? Or to not compromise my convictions and my beliefs. And, and it's interesting because Jesus, in his way of life, this is kind of pulling from just the Gospels, 
People say, well, Jesus hung out with sinners all the time, Trey. Like, so I can do that. And I said, yeah, but if you notice, Jesus had a dinner with sinners. He also spent a day and a half in prayer before that. So if you want to go on your bar crawl, why don't you pray for two straight days and then let me know how it goes. I think you'll do pretty well. Um, but the idea is that he did, not, he did not push himself to a rhythm that was unsustainable. He did not constantly live his life with cult, cultural pressure to the point where he, he could not build his identity around the Father. And in the same way for us, and these, like, their pressure was constant. We have pressure. We can go to a small group in the morning. We can meet here and not be harassed. We can do these things that are uplifting for our faith and our journey in following Jesus. We have people that love us in this community. The Christians in Pergamum, just, it was very hard because it was constantly opposing them. So that was one teaching. The other one is the Nicolaitans, which you see on there. It's a verse later. The teaching of the Nicolaitans is very similar. We actually don't know a lot about them because there wasn't, there's not a lot of substantial verses about them. There's not a lot of history about the Nicolaitans. But what we do know and what we can infer is that it was very similar. It was, uh, it was, it was, more, it was less about accommodation and more about modernization. And so what the Nicolaitans would do, they would say, well, okay, if Jesus is Lord and Jesus died for our sins, that means that we don't need to follow the Mosaic or the Jewish law anymore. And so what they would do is they would say, Jesus, we're free, so now we can partake, we can partake in ritual sex acts because uh, we're not bound by the Mosaic law anymore. Like, it's totally fine, right? Or even if, even if we can't, like, Jesus has forgiven us. And so we can, we can use cheap grace, meaning we can just do whatever we want. Jesus will forgive us. He's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so they started partaking these things, saying, no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter anymore. And Jesus is probably like, oh, my gosh, I literally said I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. But here these people are like, no, 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 let's just get rid of it. We'll just do whatever we want, right? So there's these two strains of teachings infiltrating the church. And, and at the end of the day, this is an objective question, but which one do you think is more fun? Those strains of teachings or the teachings of Jesus? Pretty simple answer. The ones where you get to do more stuff, right? You can just do whatever you want, and you have relationships. You don't have any, any strife in any of your relationships. And so Jesus is saying, hey, there's these two areas that you're falling prey to, and it's, it's consuming you. Whether it's just small compromises now, it is going to be a massive issue in the future. And so what they're doing is, it's not that they were destroying Christianity in the beginning, and he even says that. What they were doing was they were presenting an improved and modernized version of it, right? They were trying to, to modernize it to the point where it had no, no bones, no foundation. It was just sifting in between the potential issues of the people in the city. It was getting to the point where Christians... Uh, which is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Christians would, would be violating their conscience because they felt that they had the right to do that. That they would, they, would, they would move aside from their conscience or the Holy Spirit and they would go do it. And there was literally Christian husbands who were going to the temple and, and sleeping with temple prostitutes thinking it was okay and thinking that they could forsake their, their marriage bond um, because it was done in the name of religion. There were people who were just partaking in so many of these things. And... I think about, like, you know, kind of wrapping this all up. Like, what does this mean for us, right? Is, is there's small moments in our lives every day, I would say, where we, ch- we can choose compromising or we can choose truth. And most times if we do compromise, we try to justify it in our heads. We try to find people around us that will enable that behavior or that thing, right, so that we feel like we are doing the right thing or more bolstered. But Jesus here is, is really just saying, like, like, you have to be aware of these cultural pressures, you have to be aware of them. You have to be aware of what they're doing. And in verse 16, his solution is simple. He says, therefore, repent. 
He says, if not, I will come, come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth, which is a little terrifying. And later he says, the one who has ears better hear, meaning, hey, you should totally listen to what I'm saying. It's very important. And then he has this blessing he gives them, um, hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. I'll explain that later. But what, what he's saying here with his sword, which is really, really actually beautiful, we read that. It says, I will come against you quickly and make war against those with the sword of my mouth. You think, wow, that's really violent. The sword of your mouth. What is the sword of your mouth? You read in Revelation 19 at the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus comes in the second coming. He's, he comes with a sword out of his mouth. And what is the sword? It is, it is the words. It is the words of truth. The sword is not an actual physical sword. He slices people. His very mere words of truth will cut to people's hearts. And it will, it will essentially cause judgment because what it's doing is it's, it's saying, here's what is truth. Here's what's right and wrong. Which side are you on? And his, 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 here's what you should do about it. Here's like, turn away from, repent, turn completely away from, you know what you're doing. And he says, even if you, if you're lying and you say you don't, or you think you don't, like, I will come at you with words of truth that will pierce through all of that. I don't know if you've had a moment in your life where like a really great friend or family member, this is pretty rare, but has just came up to you before and just said, hey, like, I love you and what you're doing is wrong. It's wrong. And it's not okay, and it's not only harming you, it's harming others around you. And just, just I mean, just kind of tells you how it is. Like, in a lot, they say they love you, and you maybe don't receive it well, but they're like, hey, like, that is essentially what Jesus is saying here. Is like, my truth will pierce your heart. Now, what you do about it, that's up to you. You can be like a spiritual buffet and choose all these different temples, and, 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 I, and you're, you're gonna, you know what you're doing. And I just think for us, like, are there areas in our lives where we've been resistant to the truth because we've been compromising and we've been justifying and we've just thought, this is far easier relationally. I don't have to upset my boss and my job. I don't have to worry about not doing this. I don't have to worry about a hard conversation with a friend or maybe even someone at my church. Like, I can just, I can just kind of compromise and accommodate. And one of, the most, one of the most simple, dangerous things that they believed is they basically believed that that they can maintain a peaceful coexistence with Rome or our culture without any sort of disloyalty to Jesus. And it's just, it's just not true. Jesus will call you to do things that, that are against the very culture and world that we live in. And so if you're not finding rifts in your life, you probably are accommodating to the point of just dilution and, 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 and you're like lukewarm. So I want to encourage you. He gives you this kind of end thing here uh, as I invite up the band to close. He gives you this end uh, promise. He makes two promises. One is he says you can eat hidden manna, which is, I'm going to simplify this because I'm running out of time, but hidden manna is basically for the Jews. The Jews were given this food that fell from the sky for a long time in the Old Testament to provide for them. And he's saying, hey, if you stop eating Balaam's food or the Nicolaitans' food, this teaching, I will continue to give you food that you might not see the day before. It comes daily. Do you trust me daily? And then the second piece, he says, is to uh, receive a white stone with a new name. And this was for the Gentiles. Oftentimes, when you were invited to a party or specifically a banquet, which is what we're talking about in the end times, is this wedding banquet, this feast with Jesus, that you would have a stone with your name on it that would get you into the party. It's like a ticket for Ticketmaster, minus all the fees. And you would, uh, you would take the stone, and, and then they would let you in because that was like your pass, right? And it was often a white stone, and... Jesus is saying, hey, you're Gentiles. You might not think that you're a part of this, but you have, a, you have an opportunity to engage in the Messianic banquet, the, the final wedding banquet. And if you're faithful to these things, if you're not deluded by the world, if you don't compromise, you'll receive this. 
I just think, guys, it's a journey following Jesus. And there's times where we have hardship. There's times where we justify the things that we do we know are not right. And in this moment, I think it's, it's a reminder that, that Jesus knows that. And that he's not coming with violence to cut you out and make you feel like trash, but he's coming with a sword that will convict you. And I think conviction is a great thing. Conviction does not make you feel guilty. It does not shame you. It draws you into truth. It draws you into peace. And so I think the main question we have to ask is, are we compromising any area of our loyalty to Jesus? So as the band comes up, they're gonna, we're going to play one more song. Um, we do this every Sunday. We have... Uh, the bread and cup, which is if you, if you profess faith in Jesus and you follow him, you can partake in that at any point. It's gluten-free there and in the back. Uh, you can take that during the song, and um, we, will, we will sing together. But you can feel free to take that in the middle of the song, at the beginning, or whenever you'd like. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.